Welcome to the Mold Matters Podcast. Whether you are looking for help recovering from mold illness or just want to learn more about creating a safe environment for your family, this podcast is the place for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Mold Matters Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Evans, alongside my good friend, Mike. Hey, Jer. Mike Adams, how are you? Good. Very good. Good. Great to see you as usual. Good to see you, Jared. Always good to get back together and and uh, talk about mold and health. Yeah. And uh, we actually treated a home together today. Yeah, we actually yeah. did some. We don't some get to mold. do that often. Yeah, it was a good morning. Started yeah. out the day right. <laughs> That's right. And then we showered and we showered. And we're clean. back at it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as as everyone knows that listens to this podcast, we obviously don't know everything about, especially the, the medical side of things. That's not our specialty. And so we like to bring in people who do know about that. And we've had some good guests in the past. And we've recently um, gotten to know um, Dr. Diane. If you're in the mold healing world, you may have already heard of her. She's out in the Colorado area. And we'd like to, uh, anyways, got to know her. And, and we're kind of excited to learn about um, an aspect of mold illness that we haven't really touched on. And so before we get into that, though, and, and, and turn some time over to Dr. Diane, would you, Mike, let's read a little bio. We want to yeah. make sure people know how, how great she is. So Yeah, it's actually very impressive. Dr. Mueller is nationally recognized as a Lyme disease, mold illness, and functional medicine expert who many doctors turn to for advice on treating severe cases of chronic diseases. She is also the founder of My Lyme Doc, an alternative medical practice that focuses on treating Lyme disease and other difficult to treat conditions like mold, fibro, I'm assuming that's fibromyalgia, gastrointestinal problems, and autoimmune disease. My Lyme Doc has helped thousands of people who have experienced the failure of conventional medicine regain their health and quality of life. She is a survivor of mold illness, Lyme disease, and prolonged IBS symptoms, and like many of her patients, she struggled for years with chronic exhaustion, severe digestive dysfunction, and chronic pain, with mainstream medicine only providing her with mildly palliative treatments. Dr. Mueller has authored a best-selling book, Use Your Mind to Heal Your Mold and Lyme, A Survivor's Guide, in which describes how she overcame mold and Lyme illness after a protracted battle and explains how others can do the same. She's to release a second edition of her book, It's Not in Your Mind, Solutions and Strategies for Lyme Disease, Mold Illness, and Chronic Infections um, in March. Back to Diane. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Is that second book out? The second book is out. The first book's actually even out of print because the new book has updated protocols and research and that sort of thing. So the second book just got released here about uh, 10 days ago. So It's Not in Your Mind is now available on Amazon. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah that that's, great. that's a very common thing I hear is, well, as you know, having gone through the traditional medicine route, you know, is that what they eventually said to you as it, it's in your mind? In your head? Yeah, I know. It was a combination of like, like with digestive, the digestive component of things, it was the IBS label, right? So the digestive component was not in my mind, but I was still just given a diagnosis that's a syndrome and a syndrome really is just a medical diagnosis for a bunch of symptoms put together when we don't really know the cause. So, yes. but from the other component of things and some of the components we're going to be talking about in today's episode, 
the brain fog, the pain, like those types of things. Eventually that was part of the diagnosis of it's in my mind. I tried SSRIs and went on antidepressants and they made me crazy. So I tried a lot of different things and it was clearly not in my mind, but it's really easy to get to that point with that diagnosis or that fake diagnosis of just we're making it up when conventional tests are normal. And most of my conventional tests were. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. And, and would, is there anything you would add to your um, bio that, that fills in a little more about you for our listeners to get to know you? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the reason I got into this work was because of my own chaotic health disorders. So I got into this work because of a ton of brain fog, memory loss to the point that I was not able to remember where I lived I would leave my house and that didn't happen every day, but sometimes I would leave my house and I'd be like a block away and there would it'd be this like episode, I would call it. Like my brain would start to diso- dissociate. I would have these wow. depersonalization events where it was almost like I would be looking down at my body outside of myself. I felt very, felt very like out of body and almost like euphoric, but not like good euphoria, like this dissociative euphoria. And in those episodes, I would be like, I would not remember, I would get very confused, like, where was my home, but it would only last like, it was seconds, right? It was, I don't even think it was minutes, but it was very, very scary when these episodes would occur. So that was, you know, that was part of my history. And I've seen so much in that regard. And my practice around, you know, situations like this, where there's crazy memory loss, or this pain for no origin. And you know, I think one of the biggest things and what else to kind of plug into this initial conversation really is to orient people that, you know, we're talking about mold and we're talking about mycotoxins primarily today. But when I actually was going through and like figuring out lab wise and technically wise, like what was all wrong with me, mold was one piece of the picture. And one of the biggest take-home points I think everybody should really remember as we're listening today is like, yeah, we absolutely want to check for mold, but so many of my own problems and so much of like what I developed in my clinical practice was this methodology that really is looking at kind of a four-pillar model to say, okay, well, mold, for example, will disrupt the brain cause a level of dysfunction in the brain that will have our thyroid go down, our adrenals go down. So part of the methodology I really built was not just about detox and all of that, but it's really about looking at, okay, balancing the microbes, the good and the bad, making sure that hormones are working, making sure there's no nutrient deficiencies, making sure there's mitochondria balance, all of those types of things. And then making sure we're doing all of the the lifestyle things that that we should be doing. And so I think it's so easy and exciting when we get on these topics to be like, oh, I understand this mold thing a little bit more, but I just want to make sure we're always rooted in the foundation that it's really all of these pillars that are involved typically when somebody does have mold or mycotoxin illness. So I have a question for you, kind of getting linking this back to Lyme disease. Yeah. Doctor up in Park City, Utah. <clears throat> Actually, I think the guy is he, he's a little crazy, but I also think he's a genius. But he said to me, and I want to get your take on this. He may be completely wrong for all I know, but he said, Mike, millions of people contract the Lyme bacteria, live a completely normal, healthy life, and never know. And he said his experience tells him that it's only when they are exposed to mold that the Lyme becomes 
very, very noticeable. And, and they think, okay, I got Lyme disease now, but it really relates more back to that, that bad synergy between the mold and the Lyme bacteria. Thank you, Mike, for this question. <laughs> yeah, it's a really important question. I really, the, the word and what you said that I want to emphasize is that word only, because for sure, I feel like we do know that Lyme goes into dormancy, right? So it's like people can have acute Lyme. It can go dormant. It can look initially when it's acute, like a cold or a flu, no bullseye rash, nothing noteworthy. And they it's self-limiting. It's kind of like a cold or a flu. Other people, it's much more you know serious. But for some people, there are these acute, acute phases. And we do know that Lyme does go into dormancy and can reoccur later. So in dormancy, people don't have, it's like, you know, chicken pox. We all have chicken, you know, not all, but a lot of us have chicken pox. We don't often develop shingles. So I tell people to think of Lyme kind of like that. Now, what causes Lyme to come out of dormancy? So this is where we have to be very careful about that word only, because mold for sure can be a trigger or a sensitizing event that can absolutely cause Lyme to come out of dormancy. COVID, though, that was a great way of waking up Lyme. In fact, I actually theorize, and this is just theory because we don't have research, but I theorize that for a great many people, what we're seeing with long haul COVID might actually be Lyme waking up. You know, some of those symptoms are hugely overlapped. So other environmental toxins, stress, there's a lot of different things that can really wake up Lyme. So I don't disagree with that doc that you're talking about that mold could be part of the picture and that mold could do that. I definitely see that. But I, I would be very cautious of saying, I get very nervous when we say like, oh, it's always Lyme or it's always mold and these sorts of things, because I, I just don't feel like that's accurate with what I've seen in medicine. There can be a lot of things that can be that sensitizing event to trigger a response to actually wake that Lyme up out of dormancy and turn it back into its active form. That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. That was a little bit of an aside, but I, I think that's really interesting. Um, so Dr. Dr. Diane, right? I know your name is Dr. Diane Mueller, but we're gonna, we, you're endearingly known as Dr. Diane. So when, when, we, when we talked to you that one day uh, a few weeks ago and, and realized that one, one of the aspects of mold illness that you happen to know a lot about is the neurological aspects. And so actually, this sounds like a really basic question, but, you know, because we've, we've studied the symptoms of mold illness many times. In fact, I have a list here of, you know, I actually have a list that's, I don't know how many you've counted, but I, I have, are there over a hundred? <laughs> I haven't ever counted, but that would not be a surprising number to me. I mean, that's why it's the great mimicker. Cause it's like practically throw it in there. It, it just disrupts so many parts of physiology. So that's probably accurate. <laughs> I, mean, I have a list of like 40 here and I, and, and I actually started to parse out like which ones are neurological and which ones aren't. And I actually had a hard time on a few of them. So can I start with a basic question? What, what do we mean when we say, you know, mold illness can affect you neurologically? Yeah, that's a, thank you. Thank you. You guys asked the best question. So starting at the foundation of that, we have, we have to think about, okay, well, what does the neurological system do? Okay. So our neurological system basically runs our whole body on some level. So we can look at our neurological systems impact on our cardiovascular system, for example. So our neurological system plays a role in proper regulation of things like blood pressure, right? So when we're talking about things like dysautonomia or POTS, where people 
get tunnel vision when they stand up and everything, they feel like they're going to faint and they get changes in their breathing and their blood pressure just from postural positions, these sorts of things. There's a neurological component to that. That's why it's dysautonomia. It's a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, right? So that's one thing that the nervous system regulates. Our nervous system will regulate our brain function, right? So there's a neurological component with having healthy brain cells. And one of the things we're going to get into is like what happens when our nerves are attacked from mold illness and from these mycotoxins. Well, when the nerves are attacked in our brain, that's where we can get brain fog, right? Our nerves are not functioning correctly. That's where we can get memory loss, these sorts of things. Another thing that we should consider is we do have a neurological impact on our digestive system. So it's not that that our nervous system is only the only component of our digestive system. We have hormones, we have all these other functions, but we can even say our digestive system has a neurological component to it as well. So really when we're looking at your list, I mean, we could probably go down your list and relate some aspect of every thing on that list back to the nervous system because the nervous system runs our entire body, right? That's kind of the network that's connecting our our entire system. That being said, when we're talking about, say, right now we're talking about the symptoms. So we could say the neurological impacts are widespread. They could really cause probably every symptom on your list, but there's a lot of different mechanisms through which we can have dysfunction in the body. So we could have the nerves that go to the digestive tract attacked and that could be a problem with digestion or the the nerves that go to the digestive tract might not be under attack and a digestive problem could come from a different root cause. So that's the, that's probably the way to differentiate is really like there are some major areas that are talked about, you know, brain fog, headaches, migraines, digestive stuff and dysautonomia, some of our top symptoms. But we could largely say that everything on your list probably comes back to the nervous system in some sort of way, just because of the connection of the body. Okay. So I actually feel validated because I was like, how can I not know if that's neurological or not? (laughs) Anyways, so it's validating to know that, you know, it's not as clear as like this symptom is neurological. This one is you know, because we even talk. I'm, I'm starting to question what the word neurological even means now. <laughs> it's your neurals. It, my my uh, my son-in-law is a neural radiologist, and I'm starting to wonder what does he even do. Kid <laughs> <laughs> does, yeah. I mean, he probably looks at the brain a lot, right? You know, it's like I think so many times in neurology we folk we do focus on the brain or we focus on certain types of diseases like motor diseases, like walking diseases, Parkinson's, you know, these types of diseases where we're, we're like, we're having this clear neurological system is not doing this impulse to make us do something correctly. But that being said, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right in trying to tease out that list and like, what is on this? Like, that's what gets so I think tricky from a standpoint of like classic conventional medicine is like trying to fit all these things in a box but like we're talking about, we can't fit all this in the box, right? You know, you, 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 uh, something you said really interested me and something that I've, I've always looked at, okay, you, mold can cause brain inflammation, right? And that can cause all kinds of problems. But I've also read that, for example, most of your serotonin is formed in your gut, right? Or that's what yes. I've read anyway. I've always... I've always kind of looked at those as two completely separate 
entities, but they're not at all, are they? It's your your brain tells your gut what to do, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, it's it's really, you know, the gut brain acts as a very like bi-directional, right? Because it's like your brain definitely is telling your and your nerves are definitely telling your your gut what to do. But the more we learn about the microbiome, you know, now we know that the microbiome comes back and it influences the brain. Right. And so there is this very, this like the gut brain axis is not unidirectional. There is this absolute like search, like circular type of feedback loop that is happening between the brain and the gut. You know, I, I've noticed this is just, and I may be wrong on this, but just anecdotally, we, I mean, I've treated over 3,000 homes. Um, I have noticed that it seems like homes that have stachybotrys, you know, the black mold. Um, there's a real common denominator with those customers and they're just having all kinds of problems with their, their gut health with. Staff. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. It's definitely amazing. Like, like the number one symptom I tend to see from a GI perspective with mold is nausea. Like that's like very, very interesting to me how many mycotoxin high patients have nausea but yeah, there's definitely like constipation. I see some, and there's absolutely this link for sure between the digestion and, you know, and these mycotoxins. And some of it could be through this mechanism that we're talking about here of the impact on the neurological system. And, you know, these toxins, like the mycotoxins will disrupt the microbiome. You know, we know toxins have a huge impact on the microbiome and the microbiome in some parts is like in some of the microorganisms really actually help with detoxification and even binding of some of the mycotoxins. So, you know, it could be a self-preservation mechanism even of the molds and of their mycotoxins to actually harm our microbiome because that can actually make the, the toxins like proliferate and, and survive in us longer as well as the, you know, the mold species. And then you throw in the immunological component of the microbiome and how the microbiome is so basically the biggest part of our immune system that, that exists in the, you know, human body. And the moment we disrupt that, the moment we disrupt our ability of our immune system to even recognize and properly remove the toxins that we encounter mold and otherwise. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I want to, so I want to, I want to probe a little further, but let's take a quick commercial break and, uh, and then we'll come back to, I, I want to probe a little more about the mycotoxins and how, how exactly they do attack the nervous system and what that looks like a little more. So be back in just a minute. All right. Welcome back to the Mold Matters podcast. We have a wonderful guest, Dr. Diane. She actually just did the ad uh, advertisement for this podcast, and we're grateful she's come to share her wisdom about mold illness. And uh, as you've heard, she specializes also in Lyme, which is you know often connected with mold. And today we're kind of diving in a little bit more to the neurological aspects now that Mike and I know what neurological means, kind of, kind of. <laughs> so, but um, and you 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 threw out little tidbits of of kind of how it how that how mold and 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 you mentioned mycotoxins earlier, you know, can play play a part in attacking uh, the nervous system. Is 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 it predominantly mycotoxin then that attacks the nervous system, not the mold spore itself? I certainly have seen more information on the mycotoxins than the mold spores itself. It, it doesn't mean that doesn't exist, but definitely what I've seen more is on the toxins. I, I do have a question and you may not be able to answer this, mm -hmm. but I've thought about this a lot because we go in and treat a home and eliminate the mold, right? We know, we know we eliminate the mold. 
there's always back and forth on, okay, how long does it take for the mycotoxins to actually leave after we've eliminated the mold? Some people believe our process does it right away because of paracetic acid is very effective on breaking down, you know, the, the metabolite. But this, this is my question. When you have a patient that has a lot of mold toxicity and let's say they actually moved out of the home or somehow they got rid of the mold in their life, how long have you seen it take? I know everybody's different, but it can take months and months to rid themselves of those mycotoxins. Is that correct? Yeah, it definitely can take months and months and, you know, sometimes a year or longer. But the biggest thing that I do tend to see if, if people are out, truly out of a place, home, work, where they're getting regular exposure, improvement starts to happen pretty quick. It takes a while for people to really be there. But, you know, within a few weeks to a month, usually we can say like, oh, we're moving in the right direction. Not saying you're going to feel awesome, but some level of shift saying like, okay, the toxic load is at least getting down a little bit. And usually if that's not happening, to me, that's a sign that we're missing something. Or sometimes it's something as simple as like mold disrupted the thyroid and the adrenals so badly that you're just not going to feel better until we do some of that building work as well. But that's kind of what I would judge on as far as time. Like if you're in a mold-free place, within a month, you want to at least feel like, okay, I have ways to go, but I'm like, I'm, I've taken, I've turned a tiny little corner. All of a sudden I'm not crashing at the end of the day to the same level, or, you know, maybe the pain, like maybe you're getting breaks in the day. You know, maybe it's like, oh, you have a couple five minute windows in the day where it's like, oh, I had a moment. And I was like, the pain went away. And then it came back, you know, things like that. You're starting to look for to actually make sure that you're not missing things and you're on the right track. Okay. Here's another question I have for you. When you are in a moldy environment, you are breathing in not only just the toxins, but obviously you're breathing in mold spores, right? Correct. Those spores have, in my mind, they have the potential to begin to colonize not only in your sinuses, but in your gut as well. When somebody has high levels of mycotoxins, they may take the, you know, the different types of tests that you can run them through for mycotoxins. Is there any way for, on your end to be, be able to determine is that mycotoxins being formed in their body because those mold, those mold spores have colonized in their body. I guess, is there a way for you to know if there's active mold in their body or not? Is, is there if there's not the perfect test, mold is so hard because, and some of this is because of the biofilms. So like mold from a standpoint of even collecting um, like the actual spores and a culture, right? So if we we're going to look for spores, say in the stool or the urine, the spores actually have to slough off the cells to make their way through the kidneys or through the intestinal tract to end up in our specimen. Blood is no different. And so because of the biofilms that mold is super good at making, it's really, really good at grabbing on to kind of the cell walls and not sloughing. So there's not great tests for actually determining the spores, which is one of the reasons why we need to make sure we're testing the house and office to make sure that, you know, the working and living environment are safe. That being said, there are certain markers on tests like the organic acids, for example, that are sometimes pointers to that happening, but there's really not a good telltale test in science yet. I think a lot of us are hoping for that. That's really going to definitively say, oh yeah, there are spores growing in the body. It's a good thing, I think, at this point to just assume that most of the time there probably are. 
So would the treatment is not really any different then from your end? This, th there is a slight difference in that it is, we don't need for it from a mycotoxin perspective. That's a lot more about detox versus a spore perspective. That's a lot more about an antifungal. So there are different, you know, different things. I tend to add antifungals to my, my mold treatments just because of wanting to be cautious. The, the negative thing that I sometimes see people happen like from a clinical perspective that don't really understand this is just prescribing something like nystatin, which is a conventional antifungal, and thinking that's going to take care of it, where even if we kill spores, right, even if we kill mold, you're still going to have to deal with the toxins. So you know, I would definitely take away that, yes, it's good to do an antifungal, but doing that is for most people, unless you have a body and a system that is just able to clear the toxins left and right, which if you're doing that, you're probably not in the super sick population. But for most people with mold illness, you just giving that antifungal is not going to be enough. You actually need to make sure you're also doing the detox and clearing those mycotoxins as well. Yeah. So on the mycotoxin, tell us, how does, how does the mycotoxin affect the attack, the nervous system? What does that look like? And then I guess we'll follow up with, well, well, let's start with that. Let's start with okay. that. Yeah, there's a couple different examples. The one is through the process of creating reactive oxygen species. So reactive oxygen species are, are their, their molecules that are highly reactive, right? So that's why they're called a reactive oxygen species. And like from a chemical perspective, what's really happening is we get these molecules in the body that mycotoxins can create. And the molecules will actually start stealing electrons or start stealing the cellular components of another cell. And then that cell will, will do that to another cell and that cell will do it to another cell. So it creates this like chain of reactions where cells are basically stealing largely from each other is the easiest way of looking at this. And so as that happens, we have processes in our body where our cells actually will self-kill themselves. It's a process called apoptosis, and they will actually kill themselves if they are not working and functioning up to par, right? So we that's kind of how our body keeps its system regulated. So when we have these reactive oxygen species occurring, and we see that our nerve cells are part of the process of this, the molecules actually getting attacked and they're stealing and that's all happening in our nervous system. Eventually what will happen is then these cells are dysfunctional because of the stealing process. And we have that process of apoptosis, that process of cellular death occur. When we have that process of cellular death occur, then our nervous system is not working up to par. It can't do its signals because it's, it's literally, there's parts of it that are actually dying, which I know when you're listening to this, this can be very scary. The good thing is we now know that the nervous system is able to regenerate. You know, years ago, they didn't think this in science and medicine, but now we know that's true. But the important thing about this is to realize this is happening. And this is where I think mold can lead. I mean, this is, we do see in research mold connected to Parkinson's and ALS and Alzheimer's and some of these crazy neurological diseases. And this is one of the mechanisms through which this, those diseases are occurring is we, you get enough neuronal cell death, nerve cell death, your nerves are not going to, the nervous system is not going to be able to function at its optimal level because you just don't have the cells working at that same level. So that's one mechanism. Another thing, and this is a little bit more related to Alzheimer's and memory and dementia. And it's really important in like realizing when we're talking about Alzheimer's, everybody thinks about, okay, this, this disease process that is occurring 
oftentimes most of the time late in in age. But one of the things that we actually see is that there are signs of being on that path to Alzheimer's that actually occur much, much earlier. And this is where sometimes it's defined or it's it's labeled as mild cognitive impairment. It's like the clinical term, which basically means you get a little memory, your memory is not working up to par, you're not on the way to Alzheimer's. But we actually see that there's a significant amount of people with mild cognitive impairment that actually turn into Alzheimer's. But we don't have any, like, there's nothing conventionally to do for mild cognitive impairment. And like, we don't have anything available until somebody gets bad enough to actually be on an Alzheimer's prescription. So mild cognitive impairment, like when we're starting to see that show up, that's when we want to get serious about figuring out what the underlying causes are, because we can do something. And in the space that all of us are working in mold, we can do something now, like long before it turns into something like an Alzheimer's because the nerves can repair. And so what happens, one of the things that we see is that plaques, like in Alzheimer's, we talk about these plaques, these tangles of the nervous system that occur. And some of these plaques and these these tangles that occur are actually seen to be self-preservation, meaning Alzheimer's plaques actually have an immunological component to them. It's actually been theorized because of their immunological component that one of the things that is happening with Alzheimer's is these plaques are actually formed to trap microorganisms and toxins like mold toxins in order to actually help fight them and fix them. Unfortunately, this is like a last ditch effort at the body that many times goes haywire and the plaques, you know, trap these things and the, the process fails and somebody can end up, end up with Alzheimer's. But the point is that some of these things that we're seeing in these longer, you know, these longer term neurological processes like Alzheimer's oftentimes are a neurological attack that went haywire because of an underlying problem like a mycotoxin. Would that, um, would that plaque be, be oftentimes diagnosed as like white matter disease? Or is that completely different? I don't, I don't know the right answer to that one. I'm going to, I'm going to punt on that one. I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Well, when you were mentioning kind of the death of the cell and that whole kind of trigger uh, chain reaction thing. Yeah. Think about, I think about some of the sickest. There's also a movie called Death of a Salesman. Like cell, death of a cell. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. Well, some people that are the sickest, I mean, I'm talking the sickest people that we've seen. I mean, this sounds very, I don't mean this to be, I don't know. It, it sounds not rude, but they almost look, there's like almost a death look on on their face. Well, we talked to Dr. They Pompa look, before. He, he calls it mold face. Mold he face. Had a, he had a name for it, mold oh, face. Oh yeah, mold yeah. face. It, it really does look like there is some, there's not life in that face that probably was once there, even though I never knew the person before, you know? Yeah. I mean, the other comment I'll give to that is like, this is, you know, we're talking about this chain reaction that is reactive oxygen species, right? That's what I call that process. But that's also known as oxidative stress, which is basically when we have all these molecules that are highly reactive like this, it's not just the nerves that are getting impacted. It's the blood vessels, like the blood vessels take a huge hit from oxidative stress, like places all over our body do. But one of the things that I see in this mold phase type of scenario you're talking about really, really red eyes you know, eyes that just like, they're constantly, you know, it's like, e, like, do you have allergies? And obviously a lot of mold people do have allergies, 
but like they, you, they take allergy medicine, you get them on MCAS stuff and, and uh, mast cell activation stuff. And the eyes stay there and the eyes just look heavy and tired and look like they've been crying all day. Well, some of that is that those reactive oxygen species, that oxidative stress chain reaction actually impacting the vasculature, uh, the blood vessels, and that shows up in the eyes. So I haven't, um, I haven't looked at it as like mold phase, but I definitely do notice for sure that so many of my mold patients, I real I really see it in their eyes. That's one area that I, when I, when I started to see their eyes clear up and turn more white, that's when I know that we're really making some serious progress because we've slowed down that process so much. Yeah. It's a, it's a really common denominator for our patients, our patients, not our, our customers, not our patients, but our customers to see kind of dark underneath their eyes. You know, it's crazy how common that yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. Mold it. So that mycotoxin, you know, because we talk about, you know, some people do have a real allergy to some kind of mold, you know, and it, it does cause sinus, you know, maybe some, some chest and, and stuff. And the way I've, in my mind, I've kind of, I've, it's too simplistic. I know that just talking to you and other people, as you said, it's mold is complicated. But I always say, well, that's probably more, you know, the sniffles, the allergy, that's that's the allergenic. Kind of the acute type stuff, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's usually as soon as they, you know, leave that place or whatever, they tend to clear up quickly. And then kind of what we're talking about here with this neurological stuff, that that is typically not your sniffles and your, your you know, it's a definitely more severe and it doesn't tend to go away quickly. I don't know. That's a very simplistic kind of distinction, but I don't know, is, is that something you agree with? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And, and, you know, and some people, and it's, I think it's not uncommon to have both, you know, an allergy type of response where we're getting an allergy type of reaction, sniffles, eye, you know, eye stuff, that sort of thing, itchiness. And we have all that. Plus we actually have the mycotoxins build up in our body. So, you know, both is also sometimes a possibility. The, I think the one thing to say to, to add like post-nasal drip, I see that like as a symptom that very much like gets associated with allergies, but could also very much be non-allergenic and is purely just more like the mycotoxins. That's, that's one that sometimes gets put in the allergy category that I see like really go both ways as a symptom. Yeah. Well, and what was hopeful about what you said when you were talking about the cells dying, you know, it's, I think it's hopeful to hear that they can regenerate, right? There's a regenerative process that can happen. Cause I think, you know, when you're thinking of cells dying and, and all these all this functionality that people lose and to know that it can be restored. And actually, I think instead of having you dive into, I mean, that's that's your work, right? Is you're you're pulling out the toxin. Maybe, maybe in brief, kind of explain what the, the process looks like. We'll we'll let any listeners that want to work with you just connect you directly. But in, in basic terms, what does that look like pulling out the mycotoxin and allowing the cell to regenerate? Yeah, I largely work in a kind of a four point process. And the first point is metabolic balancing, metabolic health. And by metabolic health, I mean a lot more than metabolism as far as how people think about it. I really mean that everything that is making our system from a met metabolic standpoint work. So by, for example, I mean, sex hormones, like making sure you have enough progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, those are in balance, thyroid hormone, adrenal hormones, 
Make sure that you have enough nutrients in your diet, all of those types of things. So a lot of what I'll do in the beginning, once we do lab work and test people through things is while they're working on fixing their home, which a lot of people need that, that, and we, you know, we typically wait to work on the mold till they're in a safe place. Then we work on other things instead. And we work on rebuilding their body to make sure their body is stronger in order to be able to better handle the detox. And Definitely doesn't, you know, prevent herxing and that that detox type of reaction. It definitely doesn't uh, fix that all the times, but it helps lower that dramatically. And then from there, I tend to go into more lifestyle work. I start with lifestyle second, usually because for so many people with mold illness, they're so exhausted that to even ask them to change their lifestyle, so they don't have the energy to do that. And so lifestyle can be, you know, for example, while we're talking about the nervous system, it's like maximizing sleep and not just sleep, but like sleep tracking, making sure you're actually getting deep sleep just because you're in bed eight hours doesn't mean you're actually dropping into those deep sleep layers. And the glymphatic system, that part of our brain that is kind of the detox part of our brain that helps to clear out the trash. Well, that's really important when we're talking about everything we're talking about in this episode, right? It's really important to get all of those toxins out so we don't have these reactive oxygen species reactions occurring in the brain. Well, the lymphatic system's active when we're sleeping and when we're deeply sleeping. So we got to get into that because that's part of healing. And then usually by that time, the mold in the home is figured out. They're in a safe place. And that's where we really get into the detox. And one of the things that I talk about in detox that I find that a lot of people are missing in their detox protocols is making sure that transport proteins of the liver are working. So our liver is designed. So a lot of people will do things like make the liver break down toxins better using things like glutathione, for example, NAC. And so a lot of people are doing that and that's great. And then they give binders to make sure that the toxins, when they make their way to the intestinal tract are bound and you get them out in your stool. But there's a missing component because if we break, when we break down the toxins in the liver, we actually have to get those broken down components out of the liver. And if we don't get them out of the liver into the bile, into the intestinal tract, which is the way we want them, then they go backwards into our circulation. And so these transport proteins in the liver actually transport the broken down toxins out. And these are things like things that make those transport proteins work. There still needs to be more research. It's still a limited amount, but it's um, choline will do it. Myrrh will do it. Tudka will do it. Uh, those are the top three that I tend to use. And so if people aren't using something to make those transport proteins work, we can get a lot of detox types of reactions that are negative because of the backup of those toxins into the circulation. And then the final step with all of that is what I call microbalancing. And that's really working on any infections, whether it is Lyme, whether it's other types of infections, rebuilding the good guys of the gut. Now that the toxins are out, it's really, it's a lot easier to repopulate the gut, that sort of thing. And I tend to do infections last for most people because when infections die, they're going to release more toxins the body has to deal with. And if the body is already backed up from mycotoxins, from other environmental toxins, if we dump more toxins in because we're killing infections, people tend to get sicker. So that's kind of the, you know, the step-by-step guide that everybody is, you know, they have their own pace they go at, but that's the most common way I work with most people. Interesting. Yeah. 
So, so you can't just take one pill is what you're saying? <laughs> I tell people all the time, like my magic wand is not, not working, but as soon as it does, I will definitely get everybody on board for the magic wand protocol. And, you know, maybe someday in science, we'll know it. There's a um, really cool research right now that's going on with light and sound therapy. And there, it's actually the, some of the, the very preliminary research is showing that it will reduce and sometimes eliminate Alzheimer's plaques. So even if somebody's progressed that far, it's really cool. And, and like I said, this research is very pre preliminary, but it's like, wow, okay, like that's getting closer to the magic wand. You play some sound, you play, you know, you'll see some frequency of light, all of a sudden plaques go away. So um, may, maybe someday there will be a magic wand, but we're not there yet. <laughs> For now, it's it's a it, it tends to be you know just listening to you and other people. It tends to be a process, right? I mean, it does. It is. Process. Kind, of a, kind of a roller coaster ride for them as well, isn't it? Two steps. Yeah, yeah. I usually like tell people it's like this kind of up and down trajectory, and we want to make sure the valleys of your low points with treatment. You know, your valleys get to a point where it's like tomorrow's val valley, as far as a low point, is not as worse as today's valley. The problem is the mind is so oriented to track what is going wrong. It's not like we wake up in the morning and think like, well, I don't have a headache. My stomach doesn't hurt. Like, you know, usually we think, oh, my head hurts. My stomach hurts. Right. So the mind tracks what's wrong, typically as humans more easily than the right mind tracks what's right. So sometimes as we're going through these ups and downs of the treatment process, when we go through these valleys where it's like, ah, oh, everything's like, feels like it's flared. It may not be as bad as a flare as it was a month ago, but the mind has a really hard time recognizing it because it's not tracking what's working. It's tracking what's not. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's been become obvious from listening to you, Dr. Diane, that if someone wants healing, they shouldn't talk to Mike or me about it. They should probably talk to someone like you. We're we're real good at we're real good at getting rid of the mold in their home. Yeah, we but, got that down. But yeah, other than that, I think keep us out. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I don't do that, so that's why we're here talking together. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and as you guys heard in the advertisement, um, Dr. Diane, I, I assume you're accepting patients still. I am accepting patients. Yeah, schedule's definitely getting full. But the cool thing about the the group program is that is really built in a way where as I get to a point where I can't take more, I do have a few limited spots still available right now. But the whole point of developing that is because it's done in a group model, prices dramatically, dramatically cheaper for people. And it allows me to continue to add more people into the practice since my time is becoming more limited. So that's another way that it's like, oh, help people. And as, as we're talking here too, it's like, you know, one of the things that's super cool about that group program is what winds up happening is people start asking questions and it's like, wow, that's the best question. And other people won't even think to ask it, but they really need that information. So it really becomes a cool thing because it's like a, a cohort of people with very similar types of, you know, problems and symptoms and root causes that are all working together and supporting each other on their healing journey and, you know, led by my team and I. I like that. Remind us of the website again or where they find you. So that is mylimedoc.com. And then if you want to go directly to the, the program I'm talking about, it's mylimedoc.com slash be your own doctor. Doctor, awesome. yeah. we, we want to thank you, Dr. Yes. Dan, for taking the time to, to share your, your wisdom and insight. I think we, we need to do it again. Yeah. Down the road. Yeah. Down the road. I would love to. I love talking to you guys. 
Scratch the surface. Scratch the surface. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was a wealth of information. Thank you so much for coming, and and uh, hopefully we can all help people get better from mold illness. And I think you're playing a key role in that. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you as well, Mike and Jeremy. Really appreciate what you guys do. It's so so needed in this field. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to the Mold Matters Podcast. Be sure to subscribe for more in-depth information on mold illness and recovery.